One thing that is absolutely maddening to thinking Christians, and I hope we're all thinking Christians today, but that's maddening to us is when people take Christ and they use Christ somehow as the ultimate promoter of their cause. It's maddening. It's maddening because when you end up doing that, when you say, well, I'm into this or I'm into that and this is what Jesus would do if he's here or this is what Jesus actually did, even though it's not true, it's maddening to us because, number one, it's dishonest. It's not true. Jesus wasn't all about all of our favorite causes. But secondly and more importantly, the reason it's so troubling, I'm saying maddening, is because it's so dangerous. Because if Jesus is all about X, Y, or Z, things that Pat's really into, or you're really into, or somebody else is really into, name the cause. If he's all about that, then he's not all about the very thing that we need most. The very thing that we need most is we need to be forgiven. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to be rescued from our sins and the penalty of our sins. And so it ends up being a very distracting kind of uh, dangerous attack on the gospel, even though it might not seem like an attack. It's nothing new. It's happening today. It's been going on probably since there was such a thing as Christianity. Uh, Again, me trying to take Jesus to promote my agenda as the ultimate promoter of my agenda. And I bring this up because Jesus, when he was on earth, didn't do a bunch of awesome and amazing things, but as the strong, silent type, he never spoke. No, he spoke and his apostles spoke. Not only did he do amazing things, he spoke and explained the meaning behind them. Remember, Jesus said things like this. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give what? To give my life as a ransom for many. I have given myself for forgiveness, for freedom, for restoration as a ransom for many. Or, so so see, he's explaining why he does the amazing things. It's for a specific purpose. It's why, even as we're studying the gospel according to Matthew, that we are reminded of his namesake time and time again, so that when we read the whole thing and seek to interpret the whole thing and all the amazing things he does, we remember his namesake, chapter 1, verse 21, name him Jesus, because he will what? He will save his people from their, you can fill in the blank, whatever it means to you. No, <laughs> it's not you can fill in the blank, whatever it means to you. He can save you from, you, you name it, whatever. No, it's not that. He came to save his people from their sins, from, the, the, from their violations of God's holy commandments that they're in trouble before God, that they're not inherently good, that they need to be rescued, they need to be delivered, they need to be saved. That's the meaning of Jesus. And all that he ends up doing points to that grand reality. And so it's maddening to us, thinking Christians, when Jesus is all about this, or Jesus is all about that, Jesus is all about this, Jesus is all... Remember, the first century world wasn't a perfect world. And they had all kinds of issues. So there would have been all kinds of good causes. Jesus came to do for you and for those people what we need most. To save his people from their sins. 
This morning we're going to be in chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel account. And now Jesus is going to send out his disciples, his apostles, to to extend his ministry, if you will. And here's what's going to happen. Just like Jesus, they're going to do awesome things. They're going to do good things. They're going to do all kinds of amazing, extraordinary things. But they will not act like the strong, silent type either. Jesus will send them out to do the great things and he will send them out preaching, explaining the meaning behind what they're doing and the meaning behind what they're doing has everything to do with Jesus is the Savior. Look to him, trust in him. And so I hope, among other things, I hope we leave here today thinking Jesus did great things, he did good things, his followers did great things, they did good things, I want to do good things even if they aren't great things but not in silence so as to be interpreted in any way. It actually is ultimately meant to point to him as the one you need to trust in. So there's a long introduction for what we'll see this morning. We're going to look at chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. If you're just joining us, welcome, glad you're here. We're studying this gospel account today in the first half of chapter 10 of Matthew. But we really can't we can better understand it if we go back just a little way. So we're going to go back to chapter 9, verse 35, and we're going to read from 9.35 all the way to 10.15, okay? So it's a longer section, but I think you'll appreciate it more when we look at the details if we read through it now. So let's go ahead and look at that. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So with the laborers in mind, then we come to the next text and he's going to talk to the disciples as they are laborers. Now, I don't want to, I'm going to rudely interrupt just for a second. The harvest analogy or the harvest metaphor comes after Jesus has been doing amazing things, but what we've seen again and again and again, people come to believe in him. Believe means trust or have faith in. They come to trust in him. They come to believe in him. They come to place their faith in him as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Deliverer. And it's happened again and again. And now Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. Read in context, there's a lot more where that came from. There are going to be many, many of these people in this harvest of believing. But there needs to be laborers, those who will go out and carry out this message, not just me. And now he's about ready to launch the disciples as laborers. Okay? Verse 1 says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, 
Give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your money, for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words... Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Pretty sobering ending. The first thing we should notice, and it's going to run throughout this whole thing, the first thing we should notice is authority. Authority is right there in our first verse. He's going to give them authority. Authority has been a common theme throughout this gospel account. And let's remember a few things. Let's remember that Jesus has been marked in Matthew's gospel account again and again and again as one who has unique authority. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people are shocked because he has unique authority like they've never seen before. And we see him having authority over the natural. We see him having authority over the supernatural. We see him having authority to raise the dead. We see him having all of this kind, all different kinds of authority. But I want to remind you that uniquely, Jesus is not a tyrant authoritarian, right? He's a king, yes. But he's the unique king that doesn't have self-serving sinful motives, He's not an oppressive king. He's the king who is also, as we see in our text, the good shepherd. So he goes to those who are like sheep without a shepherd as a king and takes care of their needs. So he's unique. He he stands out as different. He has this unique authority like they've never witnessed before. He also has interesting, unique authority. I hope you even noticed it here. Authority to tell these 12, you guys... Yes, you have jobs. Yes, yes, you have different backgrounds. It's time now to follow me. It's time now to follow me, and I'm going to give you specific instructions on what to do and what not to do. Now, it sounds maybe out of context pretty harsh, but, but they do it, so he has some kind of special authority. But I would suggest to you that it, it actually read, it read in the big picture. It's not harsh because he's shown himself to be a savior to be generous, to be caring. And so they're compelled to want to do this, right? He's been the good one, the kind one. So when he speaks with authority, they know that it's best and they want to follow. And then they're going to have authority that's unique as well. So I hope you're noticing those kinds of things. But also, we should see that he's going to grant them authority, a certain kind of authority to do certain kinds of things. It says in our verse, he calls them 12 disciples, but in verse 2, he's going to call them apostles. And the word apostle, you can remember as a word that means authority. A disciple is a follower, but apostles are more than followers. Apostles are those who follow, yes, but they're sent out and they have authority. Unique authority. Special authority. Okay? I, I like to say that if I wanted to start a cult and control people, I would claim to be an apostle. Because it would mean I have unique, unique, special authority that nobody else has. I don't think I'd be telling the truth because I think the apostolic era ended. We'll talk more about that later. But let's see. If they're apostles, they have authority. The word apostle was used before the first century in extra-biblical uh, writings uh, for naval ships. 
a naval ship would be apostled. It would be sent out with authority from the one sending it. Uh, Even commanders sometimes would be considered apostles because they're representing someone else who's the authority and they're sent out by them carrying their kind of authority. So that was the first time I've ever learned that the ships were called apostles. And now you can remember what it means to have apostle ship. It wasn't any funnier for service. So, <laughs> such a terrible, terrible joke. But, but I'll bet you remember. Commissioned, sent out to perform something special under the banner of someone else's authority, but you carry that secondary kind of authority. That's going to happen for them. And finally, the final thing I want to say about authority is that their authority is going to be tied to a, a, a certain reality, and that reality has to do with the kingdom, okay? Their, their, their authority is not to be an end in and of, of itself. Look at us. Look at us. No, it's apostolic authority to proclaim the good news of the king, the king and his kingdom. Look to him, not to us. That's what's going to be happening. Okay, now we come to verse 2. I promise we'll go faster. The names of the 12 apostles, the ones sent with unique designated authority, are these. First Simon, who was called Peter. First, not because he was the first disciple. He actually isn't the first disciple, but he's first in the list, and he's called first because he ends up being the leader. And Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. First thing to notice there is, by and large, it's pretty obscure. By and large, you don't, uh, this, this isn't a list of first round draft picks. Okay? Judas would be the pedigree if we were to take the time to look into Judas's background. Judas uh, Iscariot. You got fishermen tax collector, zealot. This is pretty much how the Lord ends up doing things by and large. To borrow from the Apostle Paul, not many wise, not many mighty. There are some. Actually, the Apostle Paul would be one of them. But there aren't many of them. But I want you to notice, so so we should notice that because it's going to ultimately be not about look at us and our power. You should name cathedrals after us, right? No, it's actually about, it's about Christ. So they're special, unique, and they have special authority, but not a very special group in and of themselves. Please notice the diversity as well. It, it's, it's on purpose. Two in particular. Two in particular. Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. You're going to like this. This is important to notice. Worth the price of admission. Matthew, the tax collector, who's our author, would be like a traitor, right? So a Jewish man who works for the Roman government to collect taxes because Israel's under Roman rule to collect the taxes from your fellow Jews. And if you can get some extra money, which they had a reputation for doing, you can get as much as you want as long as you get to Rome what Rome needs to get. So they're, they're considered bad actors, They're considered traitors to their people. In Matthew 18, we're going to learn about treating people like Gentiles and tax collectors. Those who aren't welcome, those who are compromisers, those who haven't been faithful to the people of God. That's Matthew. 
And he's a disciple. Interestingly enough, we could talk about that the whole time. We won't. On the same team as Matthew, the tax collector, is Simon, the zealot. Some of your translations don't translate it that way. Maybe they actually do if you look at a cross-reference like in Luke chapter 6. Simon, the zealot, the zealots, he too is a Jew. The zealots were those who were known for being like the the radical right-wingers. Okay? The zealots. So, so they're the ones who think all of the other Jews are compromisers if they're not willing to stand up even militantly against Roman oppression. A zealot, for Simon the zealot, would be for him to be so committed to God and the things of God that he's willing to die for the cause. Or, similarly, 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 conversely, I was going to say, or who would be willing to take a life by the sword. He's a zealot. He's a right winger. He's a radical. And guess who you, if you're Simon the zealot, despise more than anyone else, perhaps, other than the Romans? People like Matthew. You think people like Matthew are blasphemous. Maybe to be punished by the sword. Why is this all interesting and good? They got recruited by Jesus to be on the same team. Now they've been united to Christ by faith, and now they're partners. It is amazing. It is amazing. God saves all different kinds of people. He saves these two, and now they're on the list. It's good to see. It's really good to see. It's also really good to see, I mean, I'm thinking like Ephesians chapter 2 and reconciliation, all this, but it's also good to see, isn't it interesting to stop and think that Matthew writes after all of this stuff happens, right? Matthew writes after resurrection, he's writing as a historian disciple, and he still calls them by their nicknames, right? Matthew, still the tax collector, trophy of God's grace, right? Simon... Still, oh, Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. In a good way, they're remembering their past because God saves all different kinds of people. And here the Lord Jesus Christ has all different kinds of people on his list of apostles. It's impressive. It's really impressive. Maybe finally, we would just say one thing about Judas. And that's just to to note that, that Judas is recruited by Jesus. Remember Matthew 9, 4, Jesus knows people's thoughts. Jesus knows people's hearts. This isn't a mistake. This isn't a bad pick. Oh no, things end tragically with the cross. No, God does what he does. God uses bad people who want to do bad things to accomplish greater good purposes. History is going somewhere and Judas is going to be a part of it. There's a purpose, there's a plan. He came to save his people from their sins. Before we go to verse 5, there is the question about why 12? And most would suggest probably 12, either just because, or more than likely, because if we connect to the Old Testament, the people of God are commonly known as, in the Old Testament, as what? The 12 tribes of Israel. And so if we're carrying that thought through, that, that, that's just shorthand for the people of God. These disciples, these apostles, uh, 
will be the leaders of the people of God. Okay? Though we'll have Judas replaced. The, they will be the leaders. And they will be, uh, maybe we could even say memorialized or, or, or living uh, in, into eternity. They will be known with a reputation. Maybe we should build cathedrals after them, after all, as the leaders of the people of God. I say it that way because in Matthew 19, 28, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging, I would prefer translating it, ruling the twelve tribes of Israel. They're going to be the leaders. Who, who are the leaders? They're the leaders. And we will join them. Okay, let's keep moving. Verse 5 says, These twelve... I'm going to reread that. These twelve, not other twelve, not others in general, not all believers who who have ever existed. These twelve, I might come back to that later. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, using a pretty strong kind of military, has a military ring to it, instructing them, giving them specific directions. Think again, authority from Christ. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now We know it's going to get bigger than that. We know Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. If this was it, we'd say He's the Savior of the Jews. No, we say He's the Savior of the world. He's Savior of all different kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. We know that Matthew 28 is going to have the Great Commission launching not just to the Jews. It's the Jew first, to borrow from Paul, and also to the Gentile or Greek. But for now, we start with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Sounds like Ezekiel. We all, we, actually, there's already been a a non-Jew converted, uh, the centurion. We've already seen him. But the focus so far is on the Jews at this point in time. And what's the meaning of all of it? Well, verse 7 is so important. And proclaim and preach as you go saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why are we doing these great things? Why the extraordinary thing, things? Because the kingdom of heaven, the, the, the very thing that the whole Old Testament anticipates, restoration, reversal of things that occurred because of human rebellion, salvation, restoration, the new creation, it's at hand, it's close. And it's at hand, it's close because the Messiah is on earth. So not only doing the good things, but explaining the meaning behind them is what's happening here. Go and proclaim. This is what Jesus said uh, he was doing in chapter 4. So it's striking the same note. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, 417. Chapter 9, verse 35, he calls this the gospel of the kingdom. So this is good. This is good news, gospel news. It's to say, come to believe in him, rest in him, the king we, we, we've been waiting for. Go and preach that. And accompanying the preaching, so the preaching accompanies actions, and the actions accompany the preaching. Verse 8 there, if you look there with me, you can see, he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Those are the very things that Jesus was doing. And now they're to do it. Because they're sent out as unique, extraordinary representatives, doing what he does, preaching the same message He preached, but they're not focusing on themselves being the king. They're focusing on him being the king. 
what it does is it authenticates. It legitimizes. New creation kind of stuff is the kind of stuff that Jesus can do because He is the new creator. He's the Messiah. He's the ultimate deliverer. It isn't that they're to set up permanent health clinics, notice. It is temporary. It is preview of coming attractions until the second coming, until we see Christ and we're made like Him, glorified. But these things are really happening to show that He really is the one. But according to God's drama of redemption, you do have to have substitutionary atonement still. You still have to have other things happening. But we're seeing even beforehand that He's the one who has the power. Authenticating. Interesting observation by my favorite commentator on Matthew, uh, Leon Morris. He says this, There are no recorded examples of their raising dead people. Though later some disciples did this in Acts 9 and Acts 20. But then... There are no recorded examples of their healing sick folk either. We do not know how they did either or how frequently. Kind of interesting. I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill, but Morris brings it up because the point is, we're we're, we're not questioning whether they did it, but it's actually not all about that. It's all about ultimately authenticating the genuineness of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We saw the details about how he did it. I believe they did it too. But the emphasis is not on the wrong syllable, right? Sometimes we end up, we want to say, well, how did they do it? Maybe I could do it. And we're drawn in and we actually put the focus on the wrong place. The focus in their doing it would actually be to draw attention to Christ. So it seems to be a blessed subtraction, if you will. Let's now see some specifics. Specific instructions on, about integrity, about practicality. When we keep reading in verse 8, we see these words. You received without paying. Give without pay. The question I wrote down was, received what? As I'm first starting to think about these things. But when we look at the big picture, they, they, they received salvation in Christ. They received reconciliation. They received new life. They received all the good things that Messiah would give them. You, you, you received. It's, it's a great word. It's a great grace word. It's a great salvation kind of word. You received freely. Sometimes in theology, when we're trying to put things in the right words in light of what the Bible says, we talk about the empty hand of faith. We're receivers. If you're saved, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, based upon the works of Christ alone. You receive. It's free. I like like the, the image. I like to be a recipient. It's been given to me. It's been graced to me. And his point here is, when you go and you preach and you do the most extraordinary things and you tell people the good news that's more valuable than anything they will ever hear, anything they could ever know about, the most important thing on planet earth, the good news about the king and his kingdom, more valuable, yes, you give it for free. Because you received it for free. It's good calling all televangelists. We have a memo for you. 
Verse 9 says, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. The, the, the lengthy list, it's not exhaustive, but you get the sense that he's exhaustive enough to say, no preparation, you don't pack your bags, you don't do what you would normally do when you're going to go on a journey, you're just going to go now, and as you're calling them to believe in me for salvation, you who've experienced my salvation, you're going to act in faith, and you're going to trust that your needs are going to be met. Then it says in verse 11, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Read out of context could be very confusing. Find out who is worthy. Oh, find the good people who don't need salvation and stay with them. (laughs) It's not the idea. (laughs) None righteous, no, not one. The worthy people, well, if we keep reading those who receive If we keep reading, he's going to use a synonym, those who listen to your words. Those are the people who are the worthy ones. Those are the kind of people you want to stay with. So the people, some are going to reject, some are going to accept. Stay with those who accept. It's it's obvious. Matthew 10.40 would give us more light on this if we skipped ahead to the future. Jesus says, whoever receives you, uh, those are the worthy ones. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now let's keep going in verse 12. As you enter the house, greet it. This is pretty fascinating. This is kind of trippy. As you enter the house, greet it. So you pronounce a blessing upon this house. And if the house is worthy, if they receive you, they listen to you, you accept, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Then 14 says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, get ready for this. Here's your trigger warning. Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, that notoriously evil place, than for that town. Yikes. Before we go any further, just as a footnote, I just noticed that Jesus affirms the historicity of the Old Testament. I'm a Christian, I guess I do too. But moving on from there, that's a yikes moment. Strip these apostles from their apostleship, and they're just 12 dudes, 12 people, to to, to think that they're going to go around... And if people don't like what they're saying, you pronounce judgment upon them, judgment from God of the harshest kind. I mean, we should, we would, we should go, if we read it out of context, what a bunch of egomaniacs. What, who, who do they think they are? I mean, make it a little different. If I, if I went around preaching in different places and if people didn't like my sermons, I said, well, you can go to hell. And you are going to go to hell because you didn't like my sermon. Don't quote me out of context, by the way. Soundbite. <laughs> but, I mean, you, you go, the audacity. Who, do, who, who does that person think they are? Shake off the dust from your sandals. That's something that Jews would do. Sometimes even as they would leave from a Gentile territory, because the, even the, the dirt itself is unclean. So they enter into the promised land and they clean off the dust of their shoes as an act of deriding, as an act of it's just putting down. 
pretty hardcore. But what I want to do is invite you to think about this and think about it in these terms. If these 12 are apostles of the Lord Jesus and they're to preach His same message of good news, salvation in Him as the good King, the shepherd King, trust in Him and Him alone and God will accept you. But if you don't, you're rejecting the one true Savior. It means condemnation for you. You're going to get what you deserve. It's not good. Now it makes more sense. They don't have independent authority to pronounce judgment upon people because they're going to say what they think about their cause and if people don't agree with them about their cause, then God damn you. Literally. No. They're under authority as those who have authority. And they, they represent the king. And they have a good message from the king. Think about this. Think of, think of even John 3.16. That God so loved the world. Let me back up. Sometimes it's been over-dramatized in a wrong way and we've kind of missed the me- meaning. It, the meaning is not God so... Oh, 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 He so loved the world that He gave His only Son. As in, this much. Oh, it's even more. And He tried and He didn't quite get it done, but He really loved a lot. Now, I don't want to be blasphemous because I think God's love is great and extraordinary. And He he loves us a lot. Don't get me wrong. But taken very straightforwardly, John 3.16... God loved the world in this way. God loved the world in this particular way. God didn't love the world in the way I think you should love the world. God didn't love the world in the way you think you should love the world. God so loved, that is, God loved in this way, is the idea. That he gave his only unique son. God chose to love the world in a certain way and the certain way that he chose to love the world is awesome and great and grand that he gives his only son. And whosoever believes in him, trusts in him, will have eternal life and not perish. It's good news. It's great news. But it's the way God has provided redemption and reconciliation. John 3 goes on to say, if you don't believe in Jesus, there's condemnation. You get what you deserve, and it's bad. It's bad. This is why they can say, we preach the good news of Christ under His authority, and if you trust in Him, it will be good for you, and you've done the right thing. But if you reject, it's bad. It's really bad. It's really straightforward. I wonder how he could say it'll be worse for them than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you ever thought about that? We started with all of us being thinking Christians, so I'm sure you're thinking about that because we're thinking Christians. Well, at least one right answer would be there's further revelation, right? God has made himself known in all different kinds of ways, Hebrews 1 would say, but extraordinarily in these last days, the high point climax of God's revelation is he's spoken through his son. 
So they would be sinning against a greater light, we would say. More revelation, greater revelation. Pretty wild what happens here. Pretty wild. Let's end with considering a handful of things or so um, that are the same today as we as a church and as Christians want to do Christian ministry and preach Christ uh, and maybe some things that are different today. Uh, I'll start by saying um, things are going to be different because this is, this is still pre-cross. He's going to continue to suffer, culmination of suffering on the cross, atonement for sin, resurrection from the dead, ascension. Some things are going to change. And so it actually would make sense that some things are different now, although some things are the same now. Uh, maybe I'll put it this way. Everything in the Bible, I believe, is true. Everything in the Bible is applicable, 2 Timothy 3. But not all things in the Bible are equally applicable or applicable the same way. Okay? So let, just a handful or so of things to, to consider. And the first thing on my list is apostles, I do not believe, are replicated. I do not believe apostles are replicated, meaning I don't think we have apostles today. Some Christians think they do. Um, I don't. In the history of the Reformation and Reformed theology, I'll just use that as an example, um, would be no, we don't have apostles today. They're true. They were real. They did real things, verifiably so. I'm all for it, but we don't seem to have them today. We don't seem to have them today. Even notice in our text, they are the ones who are going to do this. They are the ones he chose to do these extraordinary things. Also on my list would be the fact that in Paul's writings, like in 2 Corinthians, you had to see the risen Christ as an eyewitness to be an apostle. So that would have an apostolic era passing away because Jesus ascends. Also, I would also suggest to you Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So think about that. Just as we don't need a new cornerstone all of the time for this building, we have Christ Jesus, the chief cornerstone, built on Him as the foundation, apostles and prophets. And the church has been and is being built upon that. But you don't keep doing a foundation once you have a foundation. So again, some Christians disagree. You can disagree with me, that's fine. Um, but I stand in a pretty good long tradition of saying these are unique, extraordinary things that they did as unique, extraordinary individuals. And it seems to be an era that's passed away. We're not re-authenticating. There's enough authentication. Let's go to the next one. Uh, another thing to think about what's the same and not the same. I would also suggest that apostolic healing does not continue today. Apostolic healing does not continue today. In the Apostle Paul's ministry, he's an apostle. He's a latecomer, but he's an apostle. He was friends with Peter. Sometimes not so friendly, but they were friends. Even the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to young Timothy, the pastor, who has physical ailments, what does he say to him in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23? No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. 
that point in time, why didn't the Apostle Paul, if he had full apostolic healing authority, why didn't he just heal him? He, he, he's encouraging him to use crude medicinal means, and it might help. You don't get the idea from the New Testament that the goal of the apostles is to continue moving and to put all hospitals out of business. You you, you don't get that sense. Um, Proof authenticating the legitimacy of Jesus who when he returns, we see him and will be made like him. All things new, no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. So what we see in the New Testament, I would go to the wall for being true. But that doesn't mean it's being replicated today. Sufficient authentication. Also, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, the pastoral letters, when the the dust is settled, if you will, wrong metaphor in light of what we learned about dust. Uh, (laughs) When things have calmed down and and, and matured and Jesus has ascended, um, when Paul, for example, writes the pastoral letters, on how the church is to be conducted, what local church life is to look like, like in Ephesus or in Crete. In in those instructions, there's nothing about, and here's how thou shalt do apostolic healing services. Silent about the whole thing. We seem to be beyond that. Next, gospel proclamation will include Gentiles, not just Jews. That's an obvious one. So that's going to be a change. We're going to see it in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. It's all nations. The Jewish Savior is the Savior of Jew and Gentile. And then finally on my list, I guess I have four of them. Um, I would suggest to you that the message is the same fundamentally. That the message is the same fundamentally with some qualifications. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't been raised yet. He hasn't ascended yet. So we're going to include all of those things. But, but the trajectory is moving there. And the, the essential message is the same. It's the good news. Jesus calls it good news, gospel news. It's the good news of the kingdom. And the good news of the kingdom has the king saving his people from their sins, delivering them. Oh, yes, we know that hey, we're going to learn more about atonement. We're going to learn more about uh, resurrection, more about ascension. We're definitely going to learn more. But essentially, the message is still the same. Trust in the king. Trust in him. He's the ultimate deliverer. He's not a tyrant. He's kind and gracious as the good shepherd. Come to believe in Christ. Rest in Christ. He has the power to cure all of your ills in time. In that sense, it's the same message. And so as we go, not pretending like we're apostles, but as we go as those who've been called to know nothing among you, this is New Testament later on, to know nothing among you. This is our one message, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's shorthand for we're still preaching Christ. We're still preaching salvation in Christ. Rest in Him. It's the main thing. It's the main thing. It's the greatest need. Remember, first century had all kinds of problems. And so there would have been all kinds of counters. So all kinds of good causes. What does Jesus have His disciples do? He has them proclaim the good news of the ultimate deliverance. The good news of the ultimate King and Kingdom. So my Christian friends, my thinking Christian friends, keep the main thing the main thing. It is the greatest need. Don't take your eye off of the ball. Focus. 
God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is mighty to save, that he's willing to save, that we can know that we can have eternal life based upon the fact that he didn't stay dead. He was raised, and the Bible says he was raised for us. And so we look forward to the day when we don't struggle anymore. We look forward to the the day when we are raised with him and there's no more hurt and no more pain. In the meantime, help us as men and women and boys and girls to be quick to speak the good news of deliverance in Christ in whose name we pray, amen. Have an awesome day.